We are continuing in our sermon series of the church, and specifically we're continuing in our seven pillars of the church. And this slide has been up for the longest time, and you know. Now, last week we did number six, right? Number six. The church is the community of believers. And I shared with you that this is the only one out of all of them we're going to do, we're going to do in two parts. So today we're continuing on the church is the community of believers. But I'm going to focus on today specifically regarding the member and the relationship of the member to the church. Now when I say the term member, by the way, I just want to give you a very clear definition of it. I'm not referring to those that entered into our member process, although during the the message I will refer to that. But when I refer to the members, I'm talking about those of you who are committed, those of you who have made Calvary your home church, those of you who have been fellowshiping with us, fellowshipping with us for a period of time. That's that's to whom, that's to whom I'm referring. So the assumption is you are a born again believer and you've come to faith in Christ and you've come with repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So we're going to talk about the relationship. We've been talking, all of these subjects talk about the church. That's what it is. You know, we saw the first one. The church is built upon Jesus Christ as Lord. The second, the church is built upon the Word of God. The third, the church is gospel proclaiming. The fourth, the church is missional fifth the church is focused on godly worship and here we are today talking about the church as a community of believers last week we talked about the role the definition of the church but today i want to narrow the focus i want to get more specific because what is the church and what is our relationship to the church and i'm going to tell you i'm going to give you a spoiler alert here it is it's not intended that you come once a week All right, let's put that one out there. The church is not a place you go once a week. The church is not a building. The church is not an organization formed and controlled by men. Let's take a look at some things about the church. You know, the term church is used 199 times. In the New Testament. You think it's important? I think it's important, right? It's used 199 times in the New Testament. And the church as it is defined is the body of Christ. What do we mean? Those that have been born again, those who through repentance and faith have come to Christ, they are the church. And the church is one body, universal. That believer in Afghanistan on this Sunday morning who met in a cave with maybe two or three other believers, that believer is my brother. That believer is a fellow believer in Jesus Christ. So the church is a universal, invisible body on earth. But also the church is the local body of believers. The local body 
of believers. We are a church. We are an assembly of local believers under the headship and under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what we are. Regardless of, of, of where a church meets, it could meet in the most palatial cathedral or it could meet in a barn. It is still a church because it is the gathering of believers. In Ephesians 1, verses 22 through 23, and I'm going to give you a heads up. It's going to be a lot of Scripture today, okay? But in Ephesians 1, 22 through 23, Paul writes these words, And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Here he's talking about the universal church being under the headship, under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the head of the church. Let's never lose that focus, right? We're told in Ephesians 5.22, for the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Paul would go on to say in verses 26 and 27 of Ephesians 5, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself a church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. The church of Jesus Christ is not to be defective. You know, in the Old Testament, when they had the Day of Atonement, and they were required to bring a lamb, it was to be a lamb without defect. It couldn't have a birth defect. It couldn't have a defect on the skin or perhaps it was to be perfect, and it was a foreshadow of the perfect Savior that would come in Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of people talk about, I can't wait for Jesus to come, I can't wait for Jesus to come. You know what Jesus is coming for? An unstained, glorious bride in all of her beauty. That's what he's coming for. He's not coming for a bride that's soiled. He's not coming for a bride that's stained. He's not coming for a bride that is partially holy. He is coming for a pure, holy, unstained bride. Christ himself, the head of the church. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day. Amen. I'm looking forward to that day. I hope it comes while we're preaching. Nobody would be more happy than me. I'd be like, oh, yeah, Lord, <laughs> I could do this. This is good. In Colossians 1.16, Paul writing to the church at Colossae, speaking of Christ, says this, He is also head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. And just so you know, firstborn does not mean chronology. It doesn't mean... He was the first one risen from the dead because he wasn't. 
Firstborn is a title of preeminence. That's what Paul is talking about. He's the head of the church. He is preeminent. So we know that Christ is the head of the church. What about the church itself? Well, the church is God's divine plan. 2 Corinthians 12, 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, and various kinds of tongues as he lists some of the various gifts. In Ephesians 2, verses 19 and 20, I think this is a good summary. He writes this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I've had this experience many times. You go someplace out of your local circle. Maybe you go to another state. Maybe you're in another country. Maybe you met a different person. When all of a sudden you find out they're a believer. And all of the sudden, there is a commonality. All of a sudden, it feels like family, like long-lost family. Oh, you're a believer. I'm a believer. And you come together, and there's that union. There's that unity that you immediately sense with this total stranger. That is the invisible church. That is the invisible church. That is the koinonia, the, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that our spirits testify to their spirits and vice versa, that we are children of God. You know, we, we greet each other as brother and sister, don't we? Brother Mike, Brother Lewis. We greet each other as brother and sister. Why did the church start doing that? The church started that tradition thousands of years ago. Why? Because we are all of one Father. And we are born into the church. So Brother Lewis is as much my brother as my physical, biological brother. And in many ways, much, much, much more. That's why we call each other brother and sister. It's not that we go, hey, how you doing, you know? It's because we are the family of God. This is how God has ordained it. God has the church as His divine plan. It is part of His divine plan for redemption and the divine plan for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And guess what? As members of the church, you are heralds of the gospel. You know what a herald does? In the ancient times, right, there was no email, no texting, no television, no radio. So how did a king get his message to his people? He sent out other people called heralds, and they would go into the town or the village and say, Hear ye, 
hear ye, the king has, and then they would share what the king's message, it would then be posted up in the village. Well, guess what? The believer is given the glorious, exciting privilege to be that for the kingdom of God. We go out into the highways and the byways and we proclaim the message of the kingdom of God. And it is not a burden. It is a great privilege to be able to do that. The church is God's perfect design. In Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13, Again, Paul says he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. What for? What for, Paul? Why did he give this? Very simply, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Why do we come here on a Sunday? Why do we have Tuesday night Bible study? Why do we have Wednesday night prayer meeting? And to be honest with you, I wish we had more. Why? So that each and every one of you would be equipped for the service, for the gospel, for Christ the King. That's why we come here. Hey, it's nice to see everybody. That you know, that's nice, right? But it goes beyond being nice. It's preparing laborers for the kingdom of God. And not only do we do that, but Paul tells us why else. He says, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We gather to build up in the most holy faith. I know, I, I know sometimes I could be redundant. I, I think there's a method to the madness. And I've no no. I have said this before, but I have yet to see a person who professes the name of Jesus Christ, who does not study and meditate on the Word of God, spend time alone in prayer, and not participate in a local church who is powerful and effective for the kingdom of God. And there's a reason for it. That person does not exist. That is that three-legged stool that every believer must have active in their life. So if these things are true, if the church truly is God's perfect design, I want you to, listen, if you're taking notes, write down God's perfect design equals church. Because it really is true. If this is true, if the church is God's perfect design for advancing the gospel, for building up believers, maturing believers, right? And we see this, we see this as evident because why? 
Well, we look at the Apostle Paul, we look at Peter, we look at James, we look at John, we look at Jude, we look at the person who wrote Hebrews, we look at the Gospel writers, right? And everything that they wrote, not one of them were written to a solitary person, but was written to be read in the church. In the churches. We see that instantaneously there is a very, very important role for the church. Why is there an important role? Because the church is God's perfect design. So the church is not something that is to be ignored. It is not something that is to be taken lightly. It is His perfect design. Christ loved the church so much that Christ died for the church. We hear so much, oh, Christ died for this, Christ died. Christ died for the church. It's those in the church whom Christ bore the penalty of their sin on the cross of Calvary. So if we believe in salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone, then we must, we must Believe in the church that Christ died for. So it drives us to the next important point. And this is the role and the responsibility of the members in the church. And for this, I'd like you to, we're going to begin in Ephesians chapter 3. If you would turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3. And we're going to look at verses 8 through 12. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. This is all one continuous thought, but the Apostle Paul is writing here. And he writes these words beginning in verse 8. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. We had already established that the church was God's divine plan. The church was God's divine wisdom. Paul echoes that statement in here. He says this mystery, a mystery isn't something that's unknown. When you see mystery in Scripture, it doesn't refer to that which was you know, like we think of mysterious today. How do they do that? Mystery in Scripture refers to that which was not revealed in the Old Testament. The church was not revealed in the Old Testament, right? And he said, so in the manifold wisdom of God, might now the wisdom of God, the salvation of God, salvation in, in by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, now is revealed. And how is it revealed? It is revealed through the church. 
It is revealed through the church. And notice what it says there toward the end. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access. So the church is that revelation. Christ died for that church. It all comes together, right? Christ's perfect life comes together in Christ's perfect death, which results in His resurrection, which results in His ascension, which results from the Holy Spirit descending from heaven, which results in the birth of the church. There's a reason for this, a very definite reason that comes from the wisdom of God. And so what, what do we see? We see a journey of faith in the life of the believer. Since Pentecost, the journey of faith that the Lord has left for us is as follows. It begins with faith in Christ. We come to Christ in repentance and in faith. We are born again. And we are born again into the family of God. The next thing that happens is what? We are baptized. There is a public confession, a public demonstration of our faith in Christ. We testify publicly. So we're born again. We are baptized. What is the third element? I'm going to tell you. The third element is membership into the church of Jesus Christ. We come into the church of Christ. We don't neglect it. We come into the church of Jesus Christ. We've seen how the church is God's divine institution for advancing the gospel and edifying, building up believers. That's what we do. That's what we do. Therefore, church membership, as we look back at the book of Acts, church membership was implied. It wasn't a separate thing. It was implied. They looked at it. The entire epistle of Acts of the Apostles, the entire epistles, shows us that saved members gathered where? Where did they gather? In the church. Wherever that church met. You see, in the New Testament, to the church that is in so-and-so's home. Wherever that church met. It wasn't institutionalized. It wasn't an organ. Nobody, none of the, the, the 12 apostles said, you know what, we need to build a building so that we can fulfill this thing that God has called the church. It wasn't institutionalized. The brothers and sisters got together. And they got together under the leading of the Holy Spirit. The church was never intended to become what the church, for the most part, has become today, which is some kind of volunteer organization run by a bunch of people who have a common religious persuasion. And I'll share something else. The church was never intended to be something that is casually accepted eh, i think i'll go nah i think i'll stay home oh i think i'll go to the ball game no i think i'm gonna stay home listen turn in your bibles to acts chapter 2 this is the day of pentecost 
Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 41. And so them, here's what this is what I mean that membership into the church is implied directly in the scripture. So then, those who had received the word, notice the journey of faith. Now they received the word. What does that mean? They were saved, right? There's salvation. Those who received the word were what? Baptized. There's the second journey of faith. Saved and then baptism. And there were added that day, by the way, in parentheses, if you want to put it that way, to the church, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Look at verse 47. What happened there? They were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Faith in Christ, baptism, the church. Listen, it's really important we get this. This is very, very, very important. Clearly, the Holy Scriptures not only imply, they actually state it, right? That the saved believer enters into the body of Christ universal, but then into the local church. That church is the divine institution. Therefore, when a member comes to the church, they must come with humility. They must come with submission. They must come with joy in their heart. But they must come with a willing heart to labor for the kingdom of God. Can I clarify something with you guys? Labor for the kingdom of God. That sounds so arduous, right? Like, a, oh, I'm working for the kingdom of God. But it's not. Nor is it something to be intimidated about. The faith that was given to you by Christ, the faith that was given to you by God, is to be shared. That's, that's real simple. Simple stuff. I want to qualify something. doesn't mean you have to be a theologian. It does not mean you have to have the answer for every question you will be faced by the enemies of God. It means you labor. You work for the advancement of the kingdom. Listen, there's a glorious reward for this. It's the crown of faithfulness. Honestly, let's think of a scenario. I go to Brother Lewis. For illustration, Brother Lewis is going to be Brother Pagan. I go to Brother Pagan and I go, Brother Pagan, you know, why don't you come to church with me one day? I, you know, I just heard this great message in church. I want to share something to you. And he goes, don't bother me with church anymore. I don't want to hear that. Okay. 
what actually happened to you? Nothing. People are going to say no. 99.9% of the people are going to tell you no or are going to blow you off or are going to give you an excuse. That's okay going into it. Everybody okay with that? Like, do you have to be a person that has to get a yes? 99.9% of the people are going to tell you no. But you will, you will come upon the person that says, tell me more. I never heard this before. And if the favor of God is upon you and God leads you, you may even kneel with somebody in repentance and faith and watch them as the Spirit of God takes them out of the life of the dying into the life of the living. Now you ask me, what could be more glorious than that? What could be more beautiful than that? And if you go with the Holy Spirit's leading, the Spirit will tell you, keep talking. Or the Spirit may tell you, that's it. Walk away. This is the purpose of the church. This pouring out of the Word of God is designed for what? So that I feel good? No. This pouring out of the Word of God is to build you up in the most holy faith. To do what? To sit at home and hoard it? No. But to go out and be that heralder and proclaim the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 14 through 15. This is Paul writing about believers in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 14 and 15. Paul writes, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Paul writes to them, why? So that you know how to conduct yourself in the church. And we started this off by saying, hey, membership in the church, the believer participating in the church, the believer being a part of the local church is implied directly in the Scriptures. And there are other texts that time prohibits us, uh, prohibits us to use for this. But we do know this. If you are a believer in church, if you're a believer in Christ, then you have a responsibility to the church. There comes with this a responsibility. There also comes another element, and that's the church member in unity. The church member in unity. Look at Romans 15.5, and we're going to really explore this text. Look at Romans 15.5. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome. A church he had never been to, by the way, when he wrote this epistle. Romans 15.5 Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind one to another according to Christ Jesus, 
that with one accord you may with one voice glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are Paul's words, right, in this great epistle of Romans, my favorite, absolutely favorite book in the Bible. And the Apostle Paul encourages the church to move forward as one body in all things. Move forward in one body. He prayed for God for five, if you would, virtues. Five virtues that bring unity. They are one, perseverance. Two, encouragement. Three, being of the same mind. Four, being in one accord. And five, in one voice. And by the way, his prayer is my prayer. That's what I pray for, for our local church, right? That there would be unity between us. Now, he says the first one, which is perseverance. He says that you would persevere. And he says, I pray that God gives you that perseverance. And that properly that word properly means to endure under the load. To endure under the load. It, it really talks about steadfastness, being dependable, being steady. And there is a load that every believer carries. You have a personal load, but there is a load also for the church. And the admonition of Paul is that the church should persevere on the trials that they face as a church. Now, I want to share something with you. I want to share something with you. The Roman church faced trials and tribulations unlike anything we've ever experienced. They were facing a persecution that was part of the official government directive. We are going to persecute the church. We're not facing that, right? So the Apostle Paul is praying for them. You know, hold up. Be steadfast with the faith. What were happening to some of those people? Number one, they were being crucified by the, by the dozens. They would line the Apian Way with crosses of Christians that were crucified, but their particular torture was to throw them to the animals in the Roman games so that they could be ripped apart in front of people as they cheered. They were thrown to the beasts. They were thrown in prison. They were made slaves. They were thrown in jail. You know, so this was so prevalent in Rome that recently, within the last 50 years, they discovered under the streets of Rome actual places, caverns, where the early Christians lived. And they actually find churches that they built under the streets of Rome because the persecution of the Christians was so severe. But what does Paul tell them? Paul tells them, look, persevere. Persevere as one church through these difficult times. And, you know, likewise, we as a church have faced difficult times. Nothing that resembles anything that, that they have resembled. But in the same way, we need to have this same virtue by the Holy Spirit. Persevere. Hold up. Stay steady under the load. Hey, you know we're, we're having a conference in, in February, right? 
And what's the title of that conference? Stand firm. What is implicit with that? Bear up under the pressure. There is societal pressure that is falling upon the church of Jesus Christ. There is disunity entering into the church of Jesus Christ. There are things that people who call themselves Christians are advocating for the church that just five years ago would be unconscionable. We who have the Word of God, we who believe in the Word of God, must endure truth. And it may come, not merely with criticism, but as the days continue to get worse, as we anticipate the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the burden is going to get heavier. The stress is going to get harder. And we as believers need to hold up. We need to persevere. The second virtue he talks about there is with encouragement. And properly, that's a, 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 a personal exhortation. It's an exhortation. It could be considered like a rallying cry. Hang in there. Hang in there. Stay strong for the cause of Christ. I've shared this with you before. You know, my dad on his deathbed, one of the last words he ever told me was, be faithful to the call that God has put upon your heart because on that last day you're going to be judged by faithfulness. Those are literally probably the last words my father spoke to me. You guys all know Dan Garlic. Dan Garlic, before his the last word he ever said to me, before he went on to glory, was, Brother Mark, finish well. Finish well. Those two words, finish well. And I carry that in my heart. I think about how am I going to finish the race? Am I going to be able to say like the Apostle Paul, I have kept the faith. That's my goal. But the rallying cry for all of you when you feel like life is coming down on you, when you feel like life is getting hard, when you want to give up, oh my goodness, the word is stand firm, finish well, finish well, consider what you're doing here. The word of encouragement becomes the rallying cry. And Paul rallies this Roman church with this. Be encouraged. Likewise, the call goes out to us today to remain steadfast and firm in the things of the Lord. To labor together with the same goal. To advance the gospel into the world. Hey, we live in a day and age where there are so many so-called Christians abandoning the gospel and giving in to the culture and to the cultural trends of the world. Can I say something? The trends of the world will always change. The Word of God is firm and stands forever. God does not change. What God calls terrible in the Old Testament is still terrible to this day. What he calls an abomination is still abomination. When he speaks against evil, it's still speaking against evil. Nothing new is under the sun. 
We need to remain faithful to the Word of God. We need to remain faithful to Christ who has called us. And we need to encourage one another. Stand firm. Sister or brother, stand firm in the faith of God. The Apostle Paul talks about another one. He says, be of the same mind one to another. I love that. I love that. Be of the same mind one to another. Paul urges the weak and the strong Christians, the weak and the strong, to remain united in a singular purpose of the gospel and the Christian faith. To accomplish this, listen, to accomplish this requires laying aside of self. Laying aside of self. See, there, there's, there's two ways that I think Christians look at the gospel. They look at God. They look at Christ. One is with a very self-centered way. In other words, what do I mean by that? God exists for me. The gospel exists for me. Christ exists for me. And when I stop being served, that's when I have a problem. Right? When I start being served. And you see this. It's very evident. It's very, it's very prevalent today. Right? People come into a church and they come into a church with, what's in it for me? What do you have for me? What do you have for me and my family? Right? And when they stop being served, they, they move on. They go to the next church with the same mindset. And then what happens is they become perennial church hoppers. You know? You meet them ten years later, they've been in nine different churches. I've seen that. But then there's the other. There's the biblical perspective. And the biblical perspective is a God-centric perspective. God doesn't exist for me. I exist for Him. And I exist to glorify Him. And it's not about what's in it for me. It's, Father, what could I do for You? And salvation isn't what's in it for me. Oh boy, I'm really glad I'm not going to hell. But salvation is, Father, how do I advance this out into the world? And every page of Scripture and every way we interpret the Scriptures, we look at it from a God-centric point of view. I have a little sticker on my desk that I, in prayer meditation one day this thought just came into my mind. I said, hey, I'm not that dumb. I wrote it down. But basically it says this. It says, a wrong view of God begins with a wrong view of self. If you have a wrong view of self, if you think that God's sole purpose is to make you happy and to ensure that nothing goes wrong in your life, you're missing the mark completely. When you have that perspective, then the entire world becomes, why me? Why me? Why did you allow this to happen, God? Why is this going wrong? Why did that happen? Why did this happen? When you have the God-centric view, you go, darn, I really wish this didn't happen, but Father, what are you trying to work in this situation in my life? And church, how your heart is is going to determine the lens with which you read Scripture. 
And I have no problem. I have no problem saying this, and many people may not like it. But I'm going to say this. Probably 85% or 90% of what is called evangelical today, what is called conservative right Christianity, is me-centric Christianity. Look how the churches advertise on their websites. That's, you don't even have to go any bit further. Look, oh, we have this, we have this, we have that, we have the other thing. It's consumeristic. It's exactly the same way you go to buy a car. Hey, should I get the Toyota or should I get the Honda? Oh, the Toyota has this, that, and the other thing. Oh, but the Honda has this, that, and the other thing. What's important to you? Oh, I want this, that. I want the DAV. I want this. Same thing. Same thing. Churches today have taken the Madison Avenue type of approach, and they're preaching a consumer message to bring you in. But the God that they serve is a God that's going to attend to everything of your need. And therefore, the God that they, they proclaim is a small God. And it frustrates the people when they don't get what was promised. Do you think that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob worshipped a small God that said, oh Lord, you're going to give me everything you want? Do you think the prophets that were stoned and sawn in two and beaten to death worshipped a small God? And they were like, oh, this really stinks. I thought God was going to do all this other different stuff for me. Do you think that Christ died to give you the garbage of this world? And not to bring you into the fullness of a relationship with God? Oh, church, if you hold that, clean it out. Because if you have a God-centered view, then you can endure cancer. If you have a God-centered view, you can endure unemployment. If you have a God-centered view, you can endure poverty. If you have a God-centered view, you can endure loss of a loved one. If you have a God-centered view, then the gospel screams to life of a glorious and a huge God who has provided all of your needs according to His riches and glory. And you don't have to worry about a thing. You don't have to worry about a thing. That's what it means to be of the same mind one to another. And I pray that everyone in this church has a God-centered view of the glory of God and of the gospel. Lastly, the Apostle Paul says that he calls people to be in one accord. That's being, the church must be of one mind, united in purpose and belief. But being in one accord is that we're laboring for the same goal. Listen, division is never good. If you have division in the family, you got problems. If you have division in a military unit, you have problems. If you have division in a marriage, you got problems. Division is never good. No matter how much the world is trying to convince you that it is good. 
But the worst thing that could ever happen is division in a church. And I have seen it. I have lived it. I have seen brothers and sisters who hugged each other every Sunday. Brother, sister, be literally, be literally at each other's throat. Doing things and saying things that you'd say, my Lord. And I have talked to those who have been the victim of that. Those who have been kicked out of churches because they spoke truth. Those who are hated and despised by people who call themselves followers of Christ. We need to be of one accord and we need to be of one voice. Doesn't mean we can have difference of opinion on certain matters of theology. I always say there are things that we must agree in else we have no fellowship. But there are things we can agree to disagree with. But the church is to proclaim one truth. And that's the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is our declaration. Hey, if you go in your bulletin today, just pick up your bulletin, you're going to see this document here called the Calvary Confession. This was just a simple way that I wanted to summarize these vital few things, these things we must agree upon. Right? This is the requirement, by the way, for membership. Right? You look at this, you review this. These are the essentials. Right? I don't have time to go through every one of them. But you'll see something in this document. It's the words that are in bold. We believe. Look at that first one. We believe in God the Father, Jesus Christ His Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our belief is not in an ideology or a religious system, but in the person of the living triune God and His Son Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Through the triune God, I as a mortal and sinful human being can enjoy fellowship with the living God through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is our common confession. This is our common confession. Listen, I put it in your bulletin for a reason. Please, please understand what these truths are about because this is our confession as one church. And it's important that we have it documented. It sits on our website, but it's important that we have it documented because you can know what is it that we believe. We don't want to be cryptic with it. We want to be very, very forward with it. We want you to know what we believe. As members of the Church of Calvary, this local church, we come together in unity. Let me, let me touch upon the last point. Church members, as we love the church. Ephesians 4.32 reads as follows, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Listen, throughout the Scripture, the call goes out to every believer to love one another in the faith. 
right? We're to love one another in the faith. Yesterday we saw a great example of that. We gathered together and there was love in the room. I didn't see anybody punching anyone else out. Did I miss something? <laughs> Except Ricky when he was hungry. But we came together and we loved one another. We came together as the church in Acts did. We came in faith and we came in fellowship. We got together. And we are to love each other with the agape love of God, with the sacrificial love of God. We are to esteem each other as better than ourselves. Our brothers and sisters in the, in the church, they're to be dear to us. When one suffers, we all suffer. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. Listen to the Word of God. Listen to what Peter writes to the churches. 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Goes on to write in chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. The Apostle John writes this. In 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and God and knows God. And he writes in verse 12 of chapter 4, No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. We're to love each other. Not tolerate. We're to love each other so what's our takeaway in his book the church her nature purpose and worship jeffrey johnson wrote a great book on the church writes these words god calls his people to be active and faithful members of a local church going to church is not and i want to emphasize this is not to be squeezed into the Christian's weekly schedule. Rather, it is the principal activity and focal point of the Christian life. Entertainment, hobbies, work and family are secondary to the worship of God and the assembly of the saints. The primary reason for going to church, what's the primary reason? Let's break this down to the one. What's the primary reason? To worship God. That's it. We're to worship God corporately. Jesus never saved anyone to be a solitary free agent. Jesus saves us that corporately we would be the church. And as we shared in Sunday school the week before as we were going through the Ten Commandments and we talked about honor the Sabbath, there still remains a Sabbath principle that we're to take a day to worship God corporately. And that day is Sunday. That day is Sunday. So the question go out to us, what could be more important than that? Is self more of a priority in your life? 
Do you look at the church from a perspective of what's in it for me? I get nothing out of this. If Christ is the priority of your life, if Christ rule and reigns on the throne of your heart, you will look at the church much differently. You'll say, what can I do? And can I say something? I don't know who is the least. But even the least of us have a purpose and a mission in the church. We have a purpose and a mission in the church. God calls believers, men and women, to come together in the local church in unity and love and to serve others and to serve Him and to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. That's the purpose. And may I add, it's the highest purpose you could achieve. You could be the President of the United States. If you don't worship God, you're lower than that. Unfortunately, we have that. The needs are here. They're right here in your local church. The worship is right here. The teaching is right here. The heart is right here. God calls us to live our Christianity together. Together. But what we're attempting to do is far above our pay grade. But God has sustained. And wait till you see what God is going to do in February. Wait till you see what God is going to do. It doesn't matter how large or small the church is. Let me submit something else to you. There are no large churches and there are no small churches. There are only faithful churches and unfaithful churches. God doesn't have a tiered structure of, boy, those guys got 5,000, but those turkeys over there only have five. God looks at, are they faithful and unfaithful? You don't believe me? Read Revelation 2 and 3. It'll answer your question. We endeavor to be a faithful church. That's what we seek to do. Good studs, good floor, everything leveled, and then what do you do? Then you build. You know what? God's building. God is building. Not that God's going to build. God is building. And if we believe this, then the question comes down to you, are you an attender or are you a builder? I'm a builder. I want to build the, the church of God. Everybody just got to make a decision. Do I want to be an attendee or do I want to be a builder? God's looking for a few good people to say, Will you build? Will you build? And I praise God because what I see today is not what I'm going to see a year from today. God is at work. And God is building. Let's close in a word of prayer.